This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Concerns about bond market liquidity have become increasingly pronounced in recent months, igniting a heated debate among business leaders and policymakers. This is not just an esoteric issue for finance wonks either. In an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Steve Schwartzman, CEO of private equity firm Blackstone, wrote that a liquidity drought can exacerbate or even trigger the next financial crisis. To discuss the state of market liquidity today in this debate, I'm joined by Goldman Sachs' Steve Strongen, head of the Global Investment Research Division, and Charlie Himmelberg, co-head of Global Markets Research within Global Investment Research. Steve, Charlie, welcome to the program. Hello, Steve, many people involved in financial markets have voiced concern recently about a decline in market liquidity. Explain what this issue is all about and why it matters. Sure, uh, particularly to participants. It's simply harder to get trades done. Um, it's become more expensive. Um, as a result, it takes longer to execute strategies. And many asset managers have been put in a position of where a large number of investment strategies no longer work those that involve trading in and out of positions quickly, those that required leverage, all of those things have become essentially impossible to execute. And as a result of those strategies being missing, even the more normal buy and hold strategies are harder to do and it's harder to leave positions. Why does this matter to consumers who aren't transacting in the marketplace every day? They might have a 401k, they're consumers, they may own a small business, but all this market activity seems largely irrelevant to their daily lives. Why does it matter to them? It's, it's going to impact the consumer in three different ways at different moments. Uh, the first is, if we ever do have a market failure and they wake up one morning and their retirement savings are worth 10% less than they were the day before, they're going to realize they care about market failures in a very visceral way. Um, you know, historically, we've seen the equity market dislocate, but typically what happened is the bond market went up. And so the retiree often saw a modest reduction and sometimes even a gain in their retirement portfolio. Uh, the way the markets have been structured now, we could easily see the equity market and the bond market sell off dramatically, and that's going to impact retirees in a way we've never seen before. Um, and it's going to do so suddenly and without warning and without a real clear reason. And that's going to really, I think, break faith with markets um, and really impact people in a serious way. The second is that it's going to impact the way corporations manage risk. Whether it's an airline managing ticket prices, uh, a car company managing the price of aluminum for a new truck, when those commodity prices skyrocket, if the markets haven't allowed those companies to hedge that risk well, it's the consumer who's going to pay the price, not the company. And so it could be the truck that now costs $2,000 more. Um, it could be the trip to see your kids um, and your grandkids that all of a sudden is $300 more. But it's going to be some company having to pass on those prices. Because um, they weren't effectively able to use the markets to keep their costs predictable. That's right. And the third, which is maybe the biggest of the long-term impacts, is this is changing the ability of different types of companies to compete. We've seen tremendous fragmentation in the market that's provided a competitive advantage for the largest corporations against the smallest companies. And as a result, we're seeing a reduction in consumer choice. We're seeing less research and development expenditures in the economy. We're seeing economic power concentrate in a smaller number of companies and the overall level of competition in our economy decline. 
that's not long-term good for the consumer. It's going to be very hard to pinpoint the exact moment or good or problem that has occurred because of that. But over 10 or 20 years, that one may matter more than the others. Charlie, you specifically looked at the corporate bond market where lots of companies are borrowing at today's very low rates, but trading volumes are down. How does the decline in liquidity show up in that space? Yeah, I think it's a question that's vexed a lot of researchers on the topic because I think when you set out to go look for evidence of liquidity, it turns out to be surprisingly slippery and hard to nail down. But I think there are good reasons for it, some of which Steve alluded to. But I think they go mainly to the fact that Investors and firms and the dealer community all respond to the fact that the terms of trading are changing. Specifically in the corporate credit market, I think a big shift that accounts, for example, for the decline in bid-ask spreads is a shift away from intermediating markets on a principal basis, which means that a dealer steps in between a potential buyer and seller in the market and holds the risk while they look for the other side of the market. Uh, that's the way the corporate bond market has traditionally transacted. But as that cost of intermediating risk has gone up and the tools like CDS in the single name market have become harder to access, the cost of doing trades on a principal basis has gone up. And so as a result, clients, uh, investors have tended to shift away from principal trading to what's known as agency trading. Uh, and what that es essentially forces the client to do is to wait and to sacrifice immediacy it forces the client to transact the risk transfer over a longer period of time. So in the equilibrium that results, bid-ask spreads are tighter. A lot of people look at those numbers and say, gee, it looks what's like it's better, right. exactly. But in fact, what's happening beneath the surface is that clients are having to wait longer to get the same amount of risk transferred. And often when we say wait longer, people go, what's the matter with waiting a little while? Right. But you have to have a sense of two things. What actually are the time frames? So when you're talking about banks, for example, if you're talking about a large multinational bank, a SIFI, okay, typically you can trade $50 million of those bonds in an afternoon. If you go down to the next category of banks below the SIFIs, that can take two weeks. If you go down one more category, that can take three months. And so when, you, when you're going from two hours to three hours to get a trade done, that's not a big deal. When you're going from two weeks to six weeks to get a trade done, that's a very big deal. And how might that play out in a crisis? I mean, a lot of the worries about market liquidity really stem from a concern about what will happen in a crisis in a time of stress. Has, has the regulation, the post-crisis regulation, left us a little bit more vulnerable? Probably a lot more vulnerable. One of the things that when you've lived through a couple of crises, and you know, my experience goes back to the 87 crash, one of the big questions in the marketplace is, have we seen the selling? Is it done? The phrase that's sometimes used is capitulation. And people aren't willing to step in to take risk until they have the sense that they've seen the bulk of the selling. If you have a market where you can't get stuff done, you don't know if the selling's finished. And that could cause the markets to malfunction for a prolonged period of time. And particularly if it ends up being in the fixed income markets, where we've never really seen that before. That could have very dramatic um, but somewhat unpredictable consequences for the way the economy will work. You know, one of the things that made the, the 2008 crash so bad was that it actually caused the fixed income markets to malfunction in the short term end. This would probably cause the fixed income markets to malfunction in the long end. We've never seen that before. And so it's easy to say it's not a giant problem. It's easy to paint a horrible picture. The reality is it'll be a step under the unknown. And it's not clear why we've structured the system to take that step. 
a lot of people say, well, look, banks are better capitalized. They're holding sizable amounts of very liquid assets. So aren't they well positioned to help the market adjust in a crisis? They're very well positioned to survive a crisis. Help in a crisis is a very different thing. To help in a crisis means they need to have spare balance sheet capacity to take risk trades on for market participants. The reality of the new rule set is the banks have been forced to optimize their capital and balance sheet usage very, very carefully, much more than in the past. And as a result, they actually have less spare capacity, not more. And so while they're much safer institutions, they actually will be of less use to the overall market in a crisis. One of the common misconceptions that I hear when I read popular discussions of liquidity issues, especially as they entail uh, the corporate bond market, is the notion that somehow the banking sector is the other side of the market in a crisis. I think that's a false metaphor because the banking sector is there to help move risk from weak hands to strong hands. And especially in the corporate bond market, for example, when a bond falls from investment grade to high yield, that usually entails the bond shifting to a different portion of the investor base. And then again, if it falls from high yield into distress, that's yet again a different pool of capital with different types of expertise and so forth. And I think the cost of not having a functioning banking system and an intermediation function in a crisis is that those risk transfers can't happen as quickly, and so risk gets trapped in the wrong hands. And I think the aggregate effect of that on the real economy is that it essentially increases the amount of risk that risk takers have to own inappropriately, possibly, and therefore impedes their ability to take risk, which is essential, obviously, to growth and investment. So one of the arguments you hear a lot is that there are others who are better positioned these days to uh, play that function. Asset managers, hedge funds, the shadow banking sector. Why couldn't they, or could they, step in and sort of provide liquidity in the event of a market dislocation? They can provide capital and risk capacity. What they can't provide is balance sheet. Um, one of the things that's misunderstood in the system is the difference between risk capacity and balance sheet capacity. So risk capacity is that you have sufficient capital and willingness to take on risk. Balance sheet capacity means you have immediately available funds to complete the trade today. And so typically asset managers, hedge funds, pension funds have substantial risk capacity. But if they're run in any reasonable fashion, they have very little balance sheet capacity. Historically, what they would have done, um, and is how markets would be balanced, is they would go to the banks with their capital. They would use a bank's balance sheet, and the two together would allow the system to balance. What happens in the current system is the banks don't have the balance sheet to give them. And so that instead of taking that capital and applying it to the market sort of at once, you're going to have to do it piecemeal over time as little bits of balance sheet become available to complete the trade. Which leads to what you discussed earlier. There may be appetite for transfer of risk, but the inability to mechanically do it. That's right. In some ways, it's an artifact of the way the rules were written. You know, a bank today takes on balance sheet exposure that the rules constrain when they put money on deposit at the Federal Reserve. They have balance sheet constraints when they take treasury bonds from one of those clients you just mentioned and lend them balance sheet in order to buy equities in a dislocated market, that represents three or four types of balance sheet exposures. They have the lending exposure, they have the equity exposure when they're completing the trade, they have the clearinghouse exposures. Under the old rules, that was just a temporary expansion in balance sheet. They would then go away after three or four days. 
under the current rules, those actually violate funding rules, supplementary leverage ratio rules, counterparty rules, and as a result, the bank simply can't do that trade for the client. Let's talk about some of the counter arguments. BlackRock's Richie Prager said in a recent issue of a Goldman product, top of mind, I don't think there's a liquidity problem in terms of buyers and sellers. I think there's a plumbing problem. And he basically argues that changing the market structure to allow buyers and sellers to more efficiently transact directly without the banks via electronic platforms is the solution. What's wrong with that argument? That's half of the argument that I was just making. Um, there's plenty of risk capacity in the system, and the banks are safer. Uh, what there's not is the ability to create the balance sheet necessary to complete the trades. Matching platforms and the plumbing, as he was referring to, helps you when you are trading a bond for a bond and a stock for a stock. When you want to trade a bond for a stock, all of a sudden you now have three days of doubled balance sheet exposure that somebody has to fund. And if you're going to do it on a lending basis, right, that could be four times the balance sheet exposure that somebody now has to fund. That's where the system has become brittle. It's the ability to pass things through. It's not the ability to take risk. And you can refer to that as a plumbing problem, but it's really intrinsic to the way the U.S. banking system works. Some observers of this debate think the whole issue of liquidity is being raised by the banks to roll back Dodd-Frank. Krishna Mamani, the CIO of Oppenheimer Fund, said, if they can convince the Fed and other regulators, they can get relief on Dodd-Frank. That's what they want more than anything else. What's your response to critics like that who see this whole debate around liquidity as an effort by the banks to roll back regulation? One of the issues, and most of the regulators have suggested, it's time to look at the cumulative impact of the rules and regulations, see which ones have really improved safety, which ones have had significant economic costs relative to that safety. I think what the liquidity crisis is, or the liquidity questions, I shouldn't call it a crisis because I don't think there's a crisis currently, has raised is all of the balance sheet and counterparty rules that are removing flexibility from the system. I think everyone in the system agrees that getting rid of the types of leverage we saw in 07 makes sense. The kinds of static funding that was available allowed people to take on levels of risk that were inappropriate. But in the effort to make sure we didn't have that leverage, we've also now eliminated flexibility from the system. It's not clear at all that that improves safety. It is clear that it creates brittleness in the system that could potentially cause market failures. That's the kind of review that needs to take place. It's not repealing the rules as so much adjusting and recalibrating them so they create the most safety and do the least harm as opposed to safety at all cost. I think there's a, also a view that there's a trade-off between financial stability and liquidity. That too, I think, is a false narrative because if you think back and recall the way the crisis played out, illiquidity and leverage were in fact interacting in fairly dramatic ways. And when markets shut down and force prices to overshoot to the downside, then that obviously forces margin calls to bind more tightly and can exacerbate you know, a deleveraging response to a shock. So I think it's also misguided, even as a matter of financial stability, to pretend that you can address leverage without simultaneously addressing liquidity. I think the argument also understates how much progress was made in bank safety and the core rules. Immediately after the crisis, the Fed changed the capital rules that said you had to use all good equity. You couldn't use things like preferred stocks and fancy bonds to make up your equity calculations. They brought everything on balance sheet 
so that special purpose vehicles and other stuff couldn't be All used to reduce capital. Yep. That's right. Um, then they raised the basic capital ratio. And there's a new set of rules coming in place, which I think are actually very important, called the TLAC rules, which means that your long-term debt now also acts as loss-absorbing capital against your operating losses. When you look at the cumulative change in bank safety because of those rules, we actually have no historic episode, either the Great Depression or 07, even with a buffer thrown in, in which bank safety would be an issue in the next crisis. Really tremendous strides have been made just in terms of the bank capital regulations and in the capital structure of banks. And when you take that into account, um, the marginal changes in these other rules is really quite small. We actually are so far out on the tails of the statistical distributions, it actually becomes hard to calculate whether, the, in fact, they have any significant change at all. Because there's so much safety has been created in the core capital and core capital structure rules. To a lot of people outside the financial system, all the high-frequency trading, all the rapid trades and, and trading strategies seem of marginal utility to the real economy. And there's a big debate amongst some of public policymakers about whether we should be encouraging more patient, long-term, buy-and-hold strategies and de-emphasizing this sort of short-term investing, both in equity markets but also in fixed income markets. So what's the value to society of deep liquidity in the markets? Let's focus particularly on fixed income here. I think the question is a subtle one as it entails high-frequency trading because there are different degrees of high. If you think about just conventional daily liquidity, I think you know the high-level point I always like to make is that liquidity and liquid capital markets are really central to the efficiency with which the market operates. You know that may be high-frequency trading, that may be intermediate-frequency trading, but you need liquidity, however it's supplied, for capital markets to allocate capital efficiency, for capital markets to respond to new information that becomes available over the course of a project, and for the operators of those projects to adjust accordingly. Whether high-frequency trading per se is central to that or not, I actually have quite a bit of uncertainty in myself. But whether liquidity is important to me seems unambiguous. And so I think the, the question for policymakers and academics and researchers alike to seek to understand is whether high-frequency trading is additive to market liquidity or possibly a negative, because it's possible to imagine that. So someone buys a long-term corporate bond, why should they be able to turn around and sell it the next day? Investors make lots of mistakes, right? And the efficiency of the economy relies on the ability to respond to those mistakes and to pull capital away from projects that are failing and allocate that capital to the next new thing. Uh, and the problem with an illiquid secondary market is that you're kind of stuck with your initial risk positions and you don't have that same flexibility So it ends up misallocation of capital to projects that are no longer make sense in today's economy. Exactly. Mark Carney, chairman of the Bank of England, is on the record as saying, that more expensive liquidity is a price well worth paying for making the core of the system more robust. And Carney's not alone in seeing some reduction in liquidity as a necessary byproduct of a surer and safer financial system. Do you see that as a false trade-off? Simply put, yes, it's a false trade-off. It is a real trade-off to a point, which is the kinds of leverage, uh, 70 times leverage, that you saw some hedge funds operating at pre-crisis help generate liquidity that also was part and parcel part of the instability we saw during the crisis. And getting rid of that static leverage is actually part of making the system safer. 
We've also, however, in the rules that got rid of that static leverage, gotten rid of the system's ability to dynamically adjust when a lot of trades need to occur in a short amount of time. We see this now every quarter at the end of quarter because people want to use their balance sheets a little differently at the end of the quarter. It's balance sheet intensive. All of a sudden, interest rates go up for the last few days of the quarter, sometimes dramatically. Or the Swiss National Bank decides they need to change the way they deal with their currency. All of a sudden, the markets fail for a couple of hours. That's because of the system's lack of ability to dynamically adjust to those moments. We're not getting a lot of safety for having to remove the dynamic ability of the system to adjust. And that's where I think we need to revisit the rules. Getting rid of the static leverage made a great deal of sense. Getting rid of the system's ability to dynamically adjust was probably not worth the trade-off. There's a lot of talk about fragmentation of the fixed income markets in general. What is the value that's served to these corporations and others that are issuing debt of having such a vast number of products in the space? And how did we get here? A simpler answer to that really can be looked upon as the difference between Europe and the United States. If you look at one of the core differences in the corporate cultures between the two places, in the United States, much smaller companies historically have been able to raise funds in the public markets, have been able to issue bonds, have been able to get tradable equity, and as a result have been part of the market economy and have gained capital cost benefits and have been more competitive companies because of it. As the market becomes more fragmented, those advantages become available to a smaller group of companies. The Wilshire 5000 U.S. equity index now has less than 3,700 members. And so we're actually seeing what has been one of the historic strengths of the U.S. economy, which is the depths of its public markets, shrink and become available to a smaller number of companies. That's the real answer to your question of what's the loss here, is that shrinking base of corporations and that shrinking fuel for the future growth. And that fuels concentration in the bigger companies which have ready access to cheap money That's and cheap right. financing. You know, one of the things we've seen a rebirth of is captive banks and corporations funding their customers and their suppliers because they actually have cheaper funding than the banks do. We've seen a real change in the competitive balance, all favoring the largest corporations with the easiest access to public markets, whose instruments are liquid. So Steve, you traced a lot of this in the course of the conversation to basically unintended consequences of well-meaning regulation. What would you advise policymakers and regulators do to address these liquidity issues without breaking the fixes that they put in place after the crisis? I think there's two core things you take a look at the non-risk-based capital rules, SLR, the funding rules, counterparty rules, where you've really decided a class of activity size itself is a problem. For instance, deposits of the Federal Reserve count against the SLR, the supplementary leverage ratio. Secured lending against treasuries counts against the SLR. You go back and you look at the truly safe dynamic adjustments the system can make, and you exempt them from the rules. That was in the comment letters broadly when those rules were written, and looking at those types of fixes I think makes a great deal of sense. I think also looking carefully at these fragmentation questions. There's a lot of rules that create hierarchies where you get better treatment above some line, and that helps all these fragmentation issues take hold. And again, they're not risk-based as it is. They're sort of simple demarcators that were sort of used in order to avoid making risk judgments. Well, the problem is when you avoid risk judgments, 
you in some sense make one anyway, but they're typically not good risk judgments. And so I think that's the core of the rules that needs to be looked at over again. And then I think the other thing that needs to be done in the general reassessment of the rules is an understanding of just how much safety has been created by the core capital and capital structure rules. So the other rules are really assessed as margins on top of that. And I think that creates a better context for assessing the cost-benefit trade-offs in each of these rules. Steve, Charlie, thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on August 11th, 2015. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.